0: You are listening to Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinicians Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell, and joining me today is Dr. Clifford Bassett, allergist and assistant clinical professor of medicine and otolaryngology at Long Island College Hospital in New York. Dr. Bassett is also a fellow of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Welcome, Dr. Bassett.
1: Great to be with you.
0: I'd like to start with just a few numbers, if possible. Have the, have the actual numbers of food allergies actually increased over the last few years?
1: That's right. The actual
0: incidence in the United States
1: of food allergies has increased dramatically. And over the last decade or so, we've actually seen a doubling in individuals who are allergic to peanuts and nuts.
0: So do you, do you think it's really that there's a doubling, or is that patients are reporting it more?
1: We think there's a combination of factors at work. First, there's a greater awareness due to the internet and health websites and programs such as this in terms of understanding what allergies are, food allergies, and there's been more education both at the school level, physician's offices, and other educational programs about food allergies. So I think people are more aware of this problem. It is prevalent. Also, there's been improved diagnostic testing both in the physician's office as well as laboratory tests to screen for food allergies in individuals that seem to have those symptoms. Apart from that, Uh, We're looking also at an overexposure, as you will, to peanuts, nuts, oils, and other products, even uh, diaper creams or lotions, moisturizers, even cosmetics that may contain nuts or nut oils. So we're thinking that there's a greater sensitization or exposure to some of these allergens in the population, and again, may result in translation into more allergies, in this particular case, more allergies to foods.
0: That's interesting. Can you tell a difference or can a patient tell a difference between what is truly an allergy and what is an intolerance to a product?
1: Well, the best way to describe it is if there's itchiness involved, there's typically an allergy out there. So histamine and other chemical mediators are responsible for itchiness, for example, of the eyes, nose, and throat, or itchiness of the skin and or hives. So itchiness is one of those symptoms that we can sometimes very easily tell the difference between that as well as a dietary intolerance such as milk or lactose intolerance or other foods that may be difficult for the patient to digest, and i.e. acid reflux or gastrointestinal disorders. So allergies are very importantly associated with a proper history of cause and effect, and that's what we really do in the office is try and put our heads together and see what makes sense, taking the diagnostic test together with the patient's history and trying to come up with an ultimate diagnosis that's correct.
0: So someone who just goes out for a nice dinner and has some pasta with some shellfish and Gets a little diarrhea afterwards. You may not necessarily call that an allergy.
1: Well, that's a very good question. Uh, as a backgrounder, you may be aware that there's an increase in shellfish allergy, and shellfish allergy we think is probably occurs in about two and a half percent of the population. We're actually seeing larger increases in that category than even individuals who are allergic to nuts and peanuts just a few years ago. So there's been a difference in terms of the pattern of food allergy expression as well as the prevalence. And foods that are in the common in the diet now that were in common 10 to 20 years ago are having a great impact. Even overseas right now, one of the leading causes of food allergies, particularly in Asia and the Middle East, is sesame seed. So it's very interesting to look at the patterns of what we eat. And as you know, probably in most communities there's a, a sushi place at every corner, at least here in New York City, we see quite a bit of a, you know, pan-Asian-type restaurants and other foods that are introducing people to other allergens that may have some uh, involvement as far as exposure, and in the susceptible individual, the one that may be likely to be allergic, such as a person with allergy, asthma, or other allergic manifestations, food allergies in, in some cases uh, can be uh, you know more likely seen in this in this patient population. Sometimes there are other things going on. For example, very frequently a patient may be taking something as an analgenic such as ibuprofen or an aspirin product, and they may take that in conjunction with a food allergic type reaction. And when we actually do the investigation and the testing, we may find that it's actually not the food as the culprit. It may be some other cause. So it's so important in an area in medicine, the history combined with a capital review, to try and really elucidate what the triggers may be. And sometimes it is quite difficult. And at those times, you know, again, going back to the beginning, which is the patient history and some other diagnostic tests, in order to make this information accurate and more able for us to really come up with the right diagnosis and the right avoidance programs. The last thing I really want to happen is someone to avoid foods that are not problematic. I think that's usually unnecessary and unwise. So it's important to take everything into account. And individuals that have had a history of allergic reactions to foods and other things, I typically will give them a prescription when they go to the emergency room, if they do show up in the ER, with a prescription for a test called a serum tryptase level, which is a very, very good and accurate marker for allergic-type reactions, or anaphylaxis, which, as you know, is a life-threatening, potentially, allergic-type reaction. And it's a retrospective blood test, but sometimes it could be quite valuable in trying to confirm that the person did indeed have an allergic reaction.
0: So it sounds similar to a glycolated hemoglobin, kind of what's been going on for the last few months.
1: This particular study, the serum tryptase, will give you an immediate evidence for a mast cell or histamine event as, as results from either a food allergy or any type of allergic reaction. The other possible causes for elevation of a serum tryptase are, are obviously more obvious, such as a myocardial infarction, which I hopefully th- should be recognized, as well as mastocytosis, which is really exceedingly rare. So it's actually what I call a, an excellent tool in the EOR if the staff cooperates. And it's a biomarker for an allergic event, and I think that sometimes it's very important when individuals are taking multiple medications, eating multiple foods. During their local sushi cuisine, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, and up to 10 to 15 percent of the uh, U.S. population at some point during their lifetime will have some form of allergic skin involvement, whether it be hives or other related symptoms. So it's not uncommon, but the prevalence of food allergies in adults is on the low side. It's probably somewhere between 1 and perhaps 2 or 3 percent. In children and adolescents, we believe the prevalence is probably more in the category of 3 to 7 percent.
0: Back to the serum triptase, is that something a primary care physician can check in his office? He can, but typically
1: it's done right in the middle of the acute setting. So you'd literally need to have the blood drawn with a period of several hours of the presenting symptoms. And it could be done in a primary care doctor's office or the emergency room because it's a send-out test to the commercial laboratory. and The results probably won't be back for at least another four or five days. So it's really looking at the diagnosis of anaphylaxis or food allergic reaction, but it's a retrospective type of test.
0: In your practice, do you have patients that you see regularly that come in with newer and newer food allergies and they just become more phobic and actually do not have food allergies but are actually convincing themselves that they do have these and are actually just neurotic patients?
1: Well, we have what we call a disconnect in medicine, and we have a disconnect between the actual incidence of food allergies based upon testing and blinded food challenges that I just mentioned a few minutes ago and the perception. I was involved in a study about 15 or 20 years ago looking at the perception of food allergies in U.S. populations, and we interviewed 5,000 U.S. households and asked the question, do you or anyone in your household have a food allergy or food allergy type problem? And about 20 to 30 percent of the individuals questioned indicated, yes, we think we have this problem in our household. So there's a big difference between, as you talked to before about dietary intolerance, food intolerances such as lactose and other foods, versus the bona fide food-allergic type of reaction, and again, as we talked about, much less common in the adult population as compared to the pediatric population.
0: Can we blame mom for the problems of allergy? Is this something that mom gives on to the child, either through breast milk or just from her genes?
1: Well, there is data to look at breastfeeding and even during gestation, during pregnancy, in terms of exposure to allergens that can have an impact, particularly on an allergic family or allergic background. Of an individual uh, mother that has allergy and/or asthma and other allergic problems, and there's a family history of a lot of atopic things going on. There is some consideration as far as avoidance of what we call high allergy or high risk foods during the pregnancy and even during the first uh, year of life. And some of these guidelines can be found uh, at the American Academy of Pediatrics website, uh, as well as some of their uh, recent recommendations regarding primary prevention of allergy and or food allergy. But some of the uh, information, again, is preliminary, and we're still taking a look at this in terms of what we call best practices in terms of prevention of disease.
0: I'd like to ask you now about some old wives' tales I've heard and see if you can either confirm them or dispel them. I've heard that local honey is actually good to eat to combat local allergens.
1: There's actually some data on both sides of the aisle on that question And there's actually some data that I've reviewed recently for a a meeting here in uh, the United States in terms of some abstracts that were presented looking at possible allergic-type reactions in individuals who did consume honey that may have had other types of allergies, including stinging insect allergy. There is some information also looking at whether that would have any protective effect or function. It's not commonly felt that by taking in honey there would be a desensitizing effect versus uh, other medications to prevent or treat allergies. So based upon that, it's very hard to give you a clear-cut uh, recommendation. But there have been articles and research studies on both sides of that, positive and negative.
0: I'd also like to ask uh, a last question, is that I've heard that children that actually eat their own burgers can actually be boosting their own immune systems and potentially decrease the risk of developing allergies later on in life.
1: Well, we do know because of hygiene hypothesis that it's almost like a Woody Allen movie. What's good for you is bad for you, and what's bad for you is good for you. And now, of course, you know everybody's singing the praises of chocolate, caffeine, coffee, and even alcohol. The hygiene hypothesis looks at our clean environment, and what we think we're probably guilty of doing is over-sanitizing the environment during the first couple years of life and not allowing the immune system to work in a normal fashion, and we're actually pushing the immune system into what we call a TH2, or, or an allergic-prone phenotype that may be generating more patients with allergies and asthma and other problems. And so we're looking at early exposure to pets in the household, whether a couple pets in the household during the first couple years of life may in fact reduce uh, the chance of developing allergy, et cetera, et cetera. And this whole hygiene hypothesis is really come full round in terms of more and more data to show that a clean environment initially without exposure to lots of germs is probably not the ideal situation. And it has to be the right combination of exposure and protection uh, of young children. And so this hygiene hypothesis is quite popular, and it seems to be gathering steam as far as explaining what's happening to our immune system at early ages in terms of uh, the allergic uh, individual.
0: Dr. Bassett, can you tell me about the epinephrine auto injectors? Are they being used effectively and or correctly?
1: Well, as you know, uh, anaphylaxis is a potentially life-threatening problem, and unfortunately it's unpredictable. However, patients at high risk, after a careful evaluation by their physician, should have an epinephrine autoinjector prescribed. We also know that approximately one in a ten individual patients seen in emergency rooms may not be getting an epinephrine autoinjector for any potential future life-threatening allergic-type reaction, and a small minority of patients are being referred to allergists for proper evaluation and to prevent bad outcomes. It's also important to know that 20-30% of individuals who have anaphylaxis or life-threatening allergic reactions may need more than one dose of an epinephrine product, and there are two products on the market now, which is the Twinject auto injector that has two dosages, as well as the EpiPen auto injector. So it's important to get the right device to the right patient for the right reason, and it's important to educate both our emergency room colleagues in our primary care physicians, the importance of prevention and getting tested to get the right balance in terms of the right advice for the right patient.
0: I agree. I think we can all do a better job at that. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Clifford Bassett, for joining us today to discuss food allergies. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.